Helping Hand podcast. My name's Pauline Shannon. I'm a mother of three and a reflex integration therapist. Each week I will be meeting someone who helps children and families. I will be asking them what they do and how they do it. We will learn how different therapies can help, how to choose which is right for you and how to find them when you need them. Today I'm speaking to Louisa Hargett, the owner and director of a child development service called Sensory Children. Sensory Children supports children and families with sensory and eating challenges. She's also a professional mentor for therapists completing their postgraduate sensory integration training. She provides clinical supervision and sensory integration to therapists from the NHS and an independent practice. Good afternoon, Louisa. Thank you very much for joining me today. I'm really interested in hearing the different therapies that you offer. Do you want to start there by introducing yourself and describing to us what supports you offer children and families yeah um anyway thanks for having me on the on the podcast as well so I feel like it's a really valuable service for for families and yeah just a really lovely offering for people so I was excited when I saw your invitation um so yes yeah, so I um provide sensory integration therapy and um SOS feeding therapy for children with sensory difficulties or sensory integration um, delays in their development um, and for we have a new diagnosis now as of last month um, pediatric feeding disorder so children with that classically would have been described as kind of extreme picky eaters um, a lot of times these children overlap um, with the autistic population but um, we also see both conditions um, on their own so um, so yeah so but um, my um, kind of qualifications are first I was a teacher and then I qualified as a children's occupational therapist and now I'm an advanced sensory integration therapist and a registered feeding therapist so I have a, a lot of different um, qualifications but I kind of like to see things in a really holistic way so um, it's nice for me to be able to support families and um, kind of not just with one one hat on so. So how did you get to where you are? What drew you to working with children and to sensory integration and feeding in particular? Um, I kind of was like, feel like I've just been, I always knew I wanted to work with children. I was the oldest of 10 cousins and um, had a really kind of active childhood and a big family and everyone was really creative. And I was kind of running, you know, summer camp programs in my mom's back garden at 10. <laughs> I was always kind of like a real kind of joiner. Um, I worked like at American summer camps all through uni and um, then, yeah, I went into teaching and traveled around the world for five years and worked with children in lots of different creative settings. Um, I was mainly based in the arts and then I just felt like I wanted to do something a little more clinical. Um, I liked the kind of diagnostics. A lot of um, my family members are in the kind of medical um, professions and I just always kind of thought that more yeah, like diagnostic scientific side of the arts. I was kind of missing that part of using that part of my brain. So I went back as a mature student and trained as an occupational therapist. Um, and I knew I was wanting to work with children. I knew I wanted to work in schools. Um, and so I went straight into a school's job and they, it was a um, highly specialist autistic school and they needed us to have um, the postgraduate training to deliver sensory integration therapy. So they funded me and I just like was just, thought this I felt like I'd like seen God or something I just thought it was the most magical wonderful amazing 
set of theories and set of neuroscience and to see the difference it was making in people's lives and I just was like just like blown away I just thought it was so so interesting and a lot of the children we worked with as well um probably 90% of the school or something had um really severe feeding difficulties as well lots of trouble eating a range of foods um and it, we just kind of needed someone on the team that was happy to pick up with the feeding. And I just thought it was really, really interesting. Um, and it's so, I feel like with the feeding, there's so much unhelpful information for families that is kind of the standard advice that works with neurotypical children. But if you give that advice from the best will in the world, if you give that advice to parents of children that have feeding difficulties and are really extreme picky eaters, it makes things worse. And so it's just really wonderful to work with these families because the advice is actually quite simple, but it's unusual. And, um, you know, parents just haven't basically kind of haven't heard it before. And so it's just really, you, I feel like I just can make a really big difference. Um, yeah. And it's, it's all both therapies, symptom creation therapy and feeding therapy. They overlap most, you know, almost every child with a feeding difficulty has some sensory underlying sensory problems. So I very much kind of use them both. Um, but they're both really play-based. They're both like based on typical development. They're both based on really, really, really in-depth assessments, really looking at the child, looking at the family, looking at what they're doing, where they are, what they're interested in, and then saying, let's build on these strengths. Let's find these little hiccups in their development and let's find something that they love and kind of nibble in on those strengths to kind of try to fill in the holes in their development. But yeah, they're both really play-based. They're both really family-centered um to me it's just a really natural way to work that you know I want I want to have fun life like I want people to have joyful lives like I'm not interested in designing a therapy program where someone has to like stand in a clinic and throw a ball against the wall 10 times I'm like that's not joyful <laughs> that's not fun that's like really forced and yeah I just really love working with families to where um we can make these little magical micro adjustments and, you know, you discover that the mum really loves going to the beach. And it's like, well, could you guys just go like roll around in the sand one afternoon a week? And they're like, really? That's what we can do. <laughs> I'm like, if you think it's fun, like it would help their sensory needs. It would help their, you know, system develop to accept a wider range of foods. And it's just lovely to give people permission to do things that they really love and then see the neurological change and see the positive impact on children's lives. So it's really fun for me. <laughs> And hope for fun for my clients as well. You obviously love what you do, but for those who haven't heard about sensory integration, can you just briefly explain what it is and what it looks like? Yeah, so our sensory integration, um, basically it starts developing in the womb. We know all about our kind of external senses, our sense of hearing and sight and smell, but we have these underlying body senses, our sense of gravity, our sense of where our head is, our sense of where our body parts are, our sense of what's going on, on the inside of our body, like when we need the toilet or if our heart's racing, um, our sense of touch. And these body senses develop, like I said, in the womb and then in the first few years of life. And they underlie all of our communication, not all of our communication, but they support communication, they support emotional regulation, they support sleep, they support feeding, they support motor skill development, um, they support um, such a wide range of things that when we don't have those systems developing typically, we see just hiccups and difficulties across kind of all areas of life. 
Um, and then, but the magic thing is, is when we do get in and try to fill in those, those gaps and try to make those systems develop a bit more typically, um, we see really magical changes and yeah, just like holistically across lots of different areas. So, um, but it looks really simple. It looks like play. It looks like what you do with babies. You kind of, you know, with babies, you rock them and blow on their feet and tickle them and, you know, cuddle with them and roll around the floor with toddlers and do rough and tumble play. And it's lots of kind of um, things that you do with, with babies and younger children, but obviously with older children, we need to make it more age appropriate and involve different interests and have different types of equipment and, you know, obviously touch them in different ways that's appropriate. And, um, but it's very much looking at those typical things that we do with babies to support their normal development, which, you know, we would just consider you rock a baby to get them to sleep because that's what you do. Um, but with an older child, we might look at why rocking helps them and how can they access that more independently and how can they use um, those kind of movement activities to help them pay attention better in school or be able to brush their teeth or get dressed or um, anyway, that's probably not a very straightforward answer, but it's, it's a little bit complicated from a neuroscience level. <laughs> So what might I see? What behaviours or symptoms might I see in my child that should make me think that sensory integration might be part of their difficulty? Um, I feel like with sensory difficulties, it's often, you know, with the really extreme kids, it's really obvious. You know, we see them covering their ears, not being able to tolerate noisy environments, like flapping their hands, like jumping around, like banging their heads on the wall, like being really movement seeking. You know, sometimes they get ADHD diagnosis. They often have an autism diagnosis. They often are kind of seen as a really sensitive child or a really kind of difficult child or a really fussy child. Normally parents have trouble and teachers have trouble kind of keeping them settled and keeping them doing kind of the status quo. I'm not advocating for the status quo. <laughs> I'm just saying that's like how it often comes across. You know, they won't sit in school and I'm kind of thinking, why do they need to sit? It's easier for the teacher. It's not necessarily better for the child. Um, but so we often see really obvious behaviors like that, but sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes, you know, the child was a really fussy baby. They've always slept really poorly. They, they don't like to eat a wide range of foods. You know, they're, they're quite anxious and withdrawn. Maybe they're quite passive but we almost always see the motor skill um, deficit. So we almost always see that maybe they're a bit clumsy. They probably have poor handwriting. They can't tie their shoes. Um, you know, maybe they have trouble getting dressed. They probably don't really like team sports. You know, we see the motor skill because that develops after the sensory systems. Those are the things we see more obviously. Um, but yeah, it's, it is, it is difficult to pinpoint that the really obvious kids are easy and normally the parents and the teachers all pick it up and say they have sensory difficulties. We want some sensory help, but the, the kids that are a bit, um, have less obvious behaviors and, you know, that aren't jumping around, flapping their hands, banging into things. Um, sometimes it's, it's a less obvious assessment. Um, but yeah, I just normally encourage people to, um, you know, get in touch, do a screening, chat with me. I'll see if it's an appropriate referral and, you know, either tell them they need to look into something else or um, tell them I'm, I'm able to help them. So, um, yeah. So how do you get referrals? Do people self, self-refer self to you or do they need to come through a doctor or a school? 
I work in private practice now, so everything's self-referral. Um, yeah, to be honest, I, most of my work comes from word of mouth. I have have a lot of families that just have you know heard of me from from someone else. I don't really do any marketing or advertising, um, but um, and I work with lots of um, not lots of, but I work with a few organisations and schools where I do the training you know for an NHS trust or for like the sensory integration education, which trains all the sensory integration therapists and they have lots of support for parents. So I work for several kind of larger or organizations that commission me to do training. And then I would train a load of their therapist or provide training for a load of parents. And then I get lots of other referrals from those because, you know, or I work with a private family who wants me to, or we decide that it's appropriate to train, you know, all the staff that's working with a certain child and then they actually realize that oh we have lots of other children that need this we could train other staff so it kind of seems to creep out really quickly um which is wonderful so so if somebody um contacts you what would the process be from them getting in touch through sort of assessment and sort of roughly how many sessions or how long are you involved with a family um so i always do a little like um introductory chat with families for free I think like we kind of talked about before I think family readiness is really important I think knowing and for clinical readiness as well a lot of times not a lot of times but sometimes parents will contact me and say we're undergoing these like you know medical investigations for this and we're about to change schools and about to do this and you know sometimes I just say let's get those medical investigations get the results let's you know, if you need some support getting started with the new school. But so anyway, so I always do a chat just to make sure I'm a good fit. The families are a good fit. The families are at a right spot. Um, and then I do really, really in-depth assessments. I almost always assess with another professional now um, because most of the kids I work with are so complex, especially the feeding kids. We've got to have more than one person because there's almost always some underlying medical stuff going on. Um, so we do really in-depth assessments and the parents need to be again in the right place to commission and invest you know for, to pay two therapists to spend quite a lot of time to look in depth of their child they need to be in the right place to be able to provide a lot of information for us um, and that's kind of what sets us apart as well from what NHS is able to offer the NHS is absolutely brilliant but you know they don't have 10 hours to to do in-depth assessment well there's a few services that do um, you know probably two or three across the country but we just really in-depth assessment is super super important like we really want to know what's going on and then we can recommend more of a light touch so parents would invest more at the beginning and then we would provide maybe once a month um, coaching or training for teachers or parents or um, things that can little things that can happen all the time so I almost never recommend you know a child needs intensive therapy with me once or twice a week for the next year. Um, I think it's much, much more effective to train and educate parents and teachers to provide little these little micro adjustments and these like really playful, lovely things that can happen all throughout the child's day. That's how we see neurological change. You know, it's, you know, if you were trying to run a marathon, you wouldn't do two press-ups and run 10 minutes once a week with a therapist. You'd do something every single day. And so for me, it's really, really important if I've got all that data from the assessment, then I can basically provide a year's worth of training, just like an hour a month for, for parents. And it's more that they need to have time to 
kind of incorporate it into their lives in a lovely, easy, natural way, rather than like overloading them with a load of stuff that then they're not able to be successful because no one can, you know, no one can take on too many changes at once. So. So are you working mostly with the parents or with the children or with both together? Mostly with the parents. I do try to see some children live, um, but they're mainly for the children that the parents for some reason haven't been able to be successful or teachers haven't been able to be successful um, carrying out the strategies that I recommend. Um, And we would pick that up at assessment. We'd say, okay, well, you've had some other therapeutic intervention it hasn't been successful. And so I would maybe do a, like a session again, maybe with the child once a month or maybe once a quarter and kind of think, how am I going to get in there and really like figure out what lights up this child? How am I going to really like unlock? And then I would kind of figure out something. <laughs> um, and then I'd hand that over to the parents and say, well, for the next month or two months, or, you know, you try to explore this kind of thing. This is the little magical piece that I found. And I'll, you know, check in with you again in a month or so and then try to see if we can nudge them forward. Um, so, yeah, but in, mostly I work with the, with the adults. Is there a particular age range of children that you can work with or that you prefer to work with? Mainly I get the little ones because I guess my background is more in early years, but um, I think with feeding to parents, you know, they know if their child isn't eating they're desperate for help. Um, most of my caseload is younger, but increasingly I'm supporting NHS services for adults with, with mental health issues and sensory issues and, um, you know, and older young adults. Um, but yeah, I think the majority of my caseload would be, you know, kind of under seven. What would your ideal client look like? Louise, I know that's a hard question, but <laughs> I'm gonna ask it anyway. That's okay. Uh, I thought it was kind of a fun question, actually. Um, I love working with families that are really passionate, that are really kind of fun-loving. Um, I know that a lot of the families I work with are in in a state of trauma, so that's not, you know, the state that they're in right then. But I think they need to want to work with someone like me who likes things to be a bit silly, a bit joyful, a bit playful. Um, you know, I'm not going to give them really, really black and white steps, you know, bounce on the therapy ball 27 times. They need to want to collaborate. I kind of go to a family and I'm like, these are the kinds of things I want to do. Like I want them to do something with their full body, something in nature or, you know, in kind of a open environment, something where they're like doing something they love. And then I need parents to kind of go, oh, well, we live near the beach or like we love to go and walk in the country with our family or like, I don't really like being outdoors, but we have like kind of this big comfy sofa that we like do pillow fights on. Like I need to some kind of dialogue and I need them to want to be involved. There's some parents who are literally so busy that are just like, I just want to send my child to a therapy gym every week. And like, I haven't got time to do this back and forth. And that doesn't, those kind of parents, it doesn't, it doesn't work so much for me to work with them because that again, that I kind of am like, well, we're not going to see really good change. I want to work with people that I know I'm going to make a really good difference in their life. Um, and yeah, I mean, parents need to be a bit edgy. They need to like want something that's like quite cutting edge. The neuroscience is really um, recently and developing all the time on this. You know, they need to want to be like kind of looking for the next thing and be a bit ambitious and be a bit 
um, you know, it's not what it's not the standard offering. Increasingly, it is. I mean, the research is changing all the time, and increasingly, NHS services are funding it. But um, you know, it's not your standard OT that's just like let's sit at a table and practice tying your shoes because your child can't tie your shoes. I'm not. We're not doing that. We're not doing any of that. So, <laughs> so I guess you want it. You want me to be a bit, bit edgy, uh, bit fun. <laughs> well, if we've got edgy, fun families out there who really want to start working with you, how do they get in touch? Um, they can find me through my website. There's um, sensorychildren.co.uk has all my social media links. I have an Instagram account, Facebook. Um, have a very small emerging YouTube channel, um, which I think is kind of fun because then people can watch videos of me and my colleagues kind of chatting about things and see if they like our personalities. Um, and yeah, my email is on there. And so, yeah, they can just get in touch. Well, we've um, got quite a lot of training um, available so people can, you know, sign up for a, a few hour parent training and listen to us chat for a bit and, you know, just check on a lighter note rather than doing, you know, commissioning a full in-depth assessment, which is a reasonable investment. Um, they can, you know, buy into a smaller piece of training, see if the advice is helpful, it sits well with them and their family, and then see if they need um, a more in-depth assessment after after they get that general information. So, Can you believe our time is running out? Is there anything? <laughs> no, I know. I'm sorry, I'm talking so much. <laughs> is there anything you want to say or anything I've not asked you that you want to say to parents before we finish up? I just think everyone's doing the best they can at whatever time and whatever stage they're in. I often see parents that feel quite kind of guilty that they haven't been able to get the right support or annoyed that they, you know, are not made further progress. And I always just think whatever stage we're in is the right stage. You know, we we need to just give ourselves permission to be to be where we are, to give our children the permission to be where they are. I always think we just start where the child is. We start where the family is that's where we're meant to start. And if a child can't do something, we don't try to force them to do that thing. We go one step before and think, well, what can they do? What is joyful? What is exciting to them? And let's try to kind of build on those strengths. And, and we need parents to be in a really wonderful, supported, joyful place in order to deliver the right kind of therapeutic intervention. So a lot of support I give to parents is just being like, you know, take the pressure off. Like, you know, dress your child and brush their teeth for the next year and let's really work on one priority thing. Let's not try to work on 10 things at once. So I guess just, yeah, I just want to tell people to just, you know, get the help you need, but don't beat yourself up about not being further ahead than you are because we always want to do too much, I think. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. That's anyway. a lovely place to end. And Louisa, thank you very much for your time. I'm really glad you came on and spoke to me. Yeah, thanks for doing this for parents. It's a great service. You've been listening to the Helping Hand podcast, connecting families with help and support when they need it. If you want more information or to find a therapist near you, go to helpinghandonline.co.uk.